The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 20th of March, 2014, in which we talk about product development. So, Brian, have you ever been involved in developing a new product? I currently am. You mean right now? Uh, well, actually, we were talking data sheets just before we started recording, so yeah. <laughs> and this was a data sheet not for just some hobby project. This was actually for work. This is for work. I think uh, most of my career I've done uh, new product development. Wow. So when you say new, you know, how new? Is this a revision of an old product? Are you saying, you know, white sheet, completely new development? Uh, in Arrow, it was always incremental improvements. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, add another five pounds to the one pound bag. <laughs> right. Uh, now that I'm out of Arrow, it's totally clean sheet. Wow. And are you having fun doing that? Oh, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a mix of... Fun and complete terror. <laughs> and and what's the scary part of it? Uh, it wouldn't be new product development if you've never done done it before, or it may not have been done before. So right, it's uh, often difficult to scope some of your problems. And and the uh, the the pressure is at this point for you is this coming from your management or from your customers? Are there actually customers that are waiting for this product? I've been lucky that it's in my in my career. It's always been both. I've, I've, I've pretty much only worked on products that have customers lined up. Well, that's terrific. Yeah, that's, that's good for business. Yes. <laughs> I hear about cold launches and I get, uh, I get a little bit, uh, of the cold sweats. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for those who don't know, what is a cold launch? Uh, I believe you might describe it as uh, a technology push, pushing like a, Something that doesn't currently exist in the market in some way, shape, or form. I don't know. Would you describe that as a cold launch? Quite honestly, I hadn't come across that term before, but it strikes me that that's always the case, that if the market doesn't know your product, first you've got to convince them that you're, you know, they need your product, mm-hmm. then that they want your product, they want to spend money on it. So there's always a, uh, a sales and marketing effort that has to go along with that. Whereas if you, de- you know, you develop another widget that's already out there and they already know they want one. Now you're just differentiating yourself from everybody else. And that's a little easier than, than starting from ground zero. And I may have invented the term cold launch by convolving several different ideas, but, uh, it's an idea that's out there. At least you know, (laughs) you, you never want to be doing a technology push is the one lesson that's been drilled into my head over and over and over again. So it's, it's always a product pull. Well, and that's certainly something that a lot of engineers, uh, sooner or later run, uh, across many engineers get into engineering because they want to be designers and we don't always get to do that. Uh, there's always a need for quality engineers and project engineers and a lot of engineers that don't get to do design work, but a lot of us enjoy doing new product development. So today we're going to talk about the, the adventures of trying to design a new product and how we do that in a way that meets the needs and desires of human consumers, clients, customers, uh, as well as addressing the technical issues that may be placed on the product. And so our guest this week is Dave Young, who has kindly agreed to return to the Engineering Commons after a 20-month interlude. 
And uh, for those who may not remember, Dave is an electrical engineer who's also an author, an educator, a small business owner. And he's been a frequent contributor to, of articles to the Element 14 website and is co-founder of Blue Stamp Engineering. And he runs his own consultancy, Young Circuit Designs. So welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thanks, Jeff. I'm so glad that you're able to, uh, to join us once again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we get to sit down and chat again. Well, now, when I went through and I listened to our last uh, discussion with you, and we talked about STEM education and your role with uh, Blue Stamp Engineering, and we'll get to that a little more this evening, we didn't discuss much about your background with engineering. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you got interested in, in engineering? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I've always, I was always a tinkerer, you know, taking apart things in the house, uh, breaking things that my parents probably don't want broken. Right. Or um, building different things. I don't know. I I found myself in high school playing with the X10 home automation systems a lot. You guys ever play with that stuff? Oh yeah, I've got it. I've got the I think the next generation of it Insteon and installed in my house. Nice. Yeah. So I had you know this is back in the nineties. So they they used to run deals where you could get pick them up for really cheap. And so I picked up a bunch of modules and I just started playing with them and it got to the point where I had my computer plugged into everything and it got complicated. And I guess that would be one of the things I wrote my high school college essay on was, you know, this is what has shown me the world of engineering and I want to go to engineering school and learn how to design this stuff, make it better. I'm familiar with the benefits, but I'm also familiar with the flaws. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I think that's where it started. And so what's the craziest thing you had wired up with your X10 system there in the house? Well, I I had, so, you know, obviously you have the lights and I had an access point. You know, as you walked into the room, I had motion detectors. I had a keychain switch. But I, I set it up as a way for me to know if my parents were coming to my room, if I was doing something maybe I should be doing. <laughs> right. Um, you know, getting the high school trouble as you might. And so I had it so if somebody would start walking up the stairs, it would trip a motion detector. And if it was in a certain mode, it would turn off a fan and the light. <laughs> so I'd, I would know immediately what was going on. Right. And yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a more complicated system than I think I needed. But you know, you find, you find problems to solve. <laughs> right. <laughs> So they actually had a PC program, or was it just devices that would connect to the uh, main uh, main circuit? No, it was a it was a PC program, and you could set. And they call them macros, so you could set it. And I think that that one particular one was a little bit more complicated. Where, yeah, I could put it in a specific mode from my keychain or something. So it would at that point it would change into like the fan would turn on and the light would turn on, and then um, it would change into. It wouldn't do that every time somebody would walk up the stairs. And they had transceivers back in the 90s that you could hook up to a computer and would go to the mains power? Uh, actually, yeah, it was it was a module that plugged right into the wall, and then it had an RJ49 connector that would be converted into a <laughs> DB9 serial I.O. port. And uh, it worked actually really well. It was you know That was the benefit of the serial port is, man, if you had it plugged in, it was probably going to work. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty impressive for a high schooler. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a fair bit of time that I spent doing that. You know, everybody's got to have a hobby. That's that's why he needed the fan because he was up so late soldering. He had to get all the fumes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Actually, I learned I would solder in my room, and I learned to turn my soldering iron off because I left it on one night, and it was at the edge of my desk, which is right next to my bed. And when my alarm went off Ooh. the next morning, I went to go turn off my alarm, and I really fried myself. Ooh, talk oh. about a rough way to wake up in the morning. Cringing over here. And so when you decide to head off to college and obviously you decided to major in engineering, was there any question in your mind that it was going to be electrical engineering? Um, no, I was pretty clear on electrical. I thought about mechanical engineering. I really liked the machine shop. And so even though I was an electrical engineer, I took machine shop, metal shop, and I took wood shop. And, you know, I thought about doing mechanical engineering, but electronics just seemed so interesting and um, intricate that I couldn't turn it down. And and was there a particular aspect of it that you focused on during your college day? Yeah. So I picked a hundred percent of my classes first on every lab course, the electrical engineering department offered. I took and <laughs> okay. then second, <laughs> I picked classes. I, I'm not much of one to code. And so I picked classes that didn't involve any coding. And my advisor always used to harp on me. Uh, he was the same advisor I had for undergraduate and graduate. You know, he used to harp on me. You know, you're really being weaker by not having any electrical or coding as an electrical engineer. You know, you need to have some background in writing code to make it happen. And I said, you know, I'd rather not give any potential employer the idea that I'd be willing to or capable of writing code. <laughs> Are you me? I think I had the same uh, <laughs> the same thought process, the same approach. Yeah, yeah. And so your philosophy is the best code is to code and solder. Yeah, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, coding is a very important thing, and I'm really glad that the my colleagues can code and do a beautiful job of it. But as far as I'm concerned, if it's more than 500 or 1,000 lines, um, I'm not the guy for the job. I've said that to people on interviews when they asked if I could code, and I said, well, I, I could, but I don't know if you'd want to use anything I've written. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I tell clients. They say, well, can't you just write a quick script to do this? And I was like, absolutely, I can. You probably wouldn't want to pay me to do it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Comes with a big end or uh, a big uh you know disclaimer, not responsible for anything that breaks from using this. Yeah. <laughs> you try you start selling your design work like that and you're not gonna get many jobs. That's true. Well, Dave, we'll talk about your uh consultancy and and your clients uh or that part of your business in, in just a second, but I did want to go back and revisit uh Blue Stamp Engineering. Uh, because that was a very interesting program that you've been involved in starting up and continuing to grow. So can you give us just a, a brief recap of, of what the program is about and what its current status is? Yeah, so Blue Stamp Engineering is a program that's designed around letting high school students build cool stuff in the summer. Uh, so we have, it's like six weeks, the students come for four hours a day, and they build stuff like robotic arms or uh, digital stethoscopes or omnidirectional robots or autonomous rovers. So very complicated projects. Um, and they do that over the six weeks under the supervision of experienced, uh, at least, uh, hobbyists, but usually engineers come and work for the summer to show students like, oh, this is your problem. Let's maybe approach it by going to this site or by going to this forum or have you tried testing this? Um, mm -hmm. and giving first the students the option to pick whatever they want to work on and second, allowing them to have um, the level of support that we give them. For every 10 students in the program, we have three staff members, a mechanical, an electrical, and a computer science engineer. 
And nice. uh, if you give them that much support, they can really accomplish anything in those six, well, not anything, but very complicated projects, far beyond what the average high school student would take on. Right. So I think the last time we spoke, I was actually in Houston uh, with the Blue Stamp program when we had a New York operation and a Houston operation. Um, since then, we've grown those two, and we've also added San Francisco this last year, 2013. We had 20 students there. And then in 2014, this summer, we're going to have Denver added as a fourth city. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, last year we had 60 students nationwide, and this next summer we're targeting 100. Very impressive. Yeah, it's a, it's a unique program, and I think there, it's absolutely um, abhorrent to, the, to one type of person, and it's insanely attractive to another type of person. Uh, <laughs> we, we take very unique individuals as students and as staff, um, and I think that... Uh, for the students that want that, first, the freedom, and second, the ex- the very intense technical support, I think that it's just like a dream come true. And that's kind of the way I'd, we designed the program, is I wanted in high school to be able to do whatever I wanted, and I wanted to be very technical. And so giving the, the high school students that are kind of similar to the way I grew up an opportunity to do that turned out to be um, quite attractive to some people. And what kind of students find it abhorrent? Well, it's usually uh, the type of student that prefers to be, God, I hate, I hate how to phrase this, to be taught. They expect somebody else to teach them um, or somebody mm-hmm. else to kind of set a path in front of them for them to follow and learn from that. Um, right. We don't, our, our style of education is very different. We won't engage a student unless they've shown three different attempts at doing something on their own. Uh, and a lot of high school students, I think, aren't ready for that level of freedom or they're not ready for that level of um, uh, open field solutions. So uh, in, until the student's ready to have an intelligent conversation about their problem and the data they've taken and uh, the theories that they have, we don't even really engage them. We tell them to go back to Google or go back to the forum. Hmm. And, you know, that's frustrating to hear, you know, there's a staff member sitting there and to hear him say, you know, I don't think you've really put in enough effort to, to be able to talk eloquently about this. I think you need to, to do some more research. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the finding the students that have this drive versus having enough students to pay the bills? Um, well, it's pretty tough. Fortunately, the application process is self-selecting to the point where we don't get many students who aren't interested in this kind of program to apply. So that keeps our overhead load, like we don't spend a lot of time interviewing and checking references for students that are never going to join the program. So that helps. And then I guess getting the word out, if you, I guess then this question of sales, being able to find the students that would be interested in it uh, is the challenge. Mm-hmm. So do you fly out to all, uh, all four cities for a session every now and again, or do you just do it from afar? Uh, no, we, we spend a lot of time on the ground in location. So we, we obviously hire the staff to be there every day. And by we, I mean myself and my co-founder, Robin. So we spend a lot of time in each of the locations, uh, to make sure that, I guess it's Blue Stamp is running the way Blue Stamp should nationally. And then for, you know, I was in New York last week to help recruit students and to get the word out. Um, we offer a lot of outreach presentations. So like I'll go to most high schools that ask. 
and talk about my career as an engineer and what it is that I do and how I got here, how to get into college, how to get a first job. Uh, I'll, I'll go out and do that for really anybody. And that's another way we, we kind of get the word out about Blue Stamp. So besides New York, do you have any other cities that are uh, looking to join on? Yeah. So, you know, we got Houston and then San Francisco. And this year we're going to start Denver. Oh, right. Yeah. You said that. <laughs> My bad. But beyond that, do you have, uh, are you in the growing mode or do you see new cities coming on every year? When we started the, the program, we thought we'd add a new city and increase the cities where we were as a growth mm-hmm. model. Um, I no longer think that that's a sustainable growth model. Uh, even this year, adding Denver is a push. But I don't know. You know, right about this time, the Blue Stamp team kind of gets together and they say, all right, let's figure out how we can get from now until the end of the 2014 program and ignore everything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of the mode we are currently in is, you know, let's let's focus on making sure we have an awesome program everywhere we are. And then if we need to figure out how to fix it in August or September, we can do that. Right. What's been your greatest challenge as you try to grow this program? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think the biggest challenge is it's not a year-round job for our staff and it's not a year-round program for our students. So mm-hmm. every, like every time we get to the winter or spring, we're, it seems like we're starting from scratch. Like we can't hire our staff to be year-round employees. So that means we have to hire new staff every year. And, um, while we don't have zero people returning, we do have, you know, not as many as I'd like to return. It'd be great if every year I could get the same staff and that would save tons of time and I could get the same students to get involved again. Um, but really, you know, maybe maybe 20% of our students come for a second round and 10% of our staff comes back because they have the time or the availability. Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of – there's a high failure rate in engineering school and I'm wondering if there isn't some – beyond the summer, if there isn't some market for uh, students who have graduated from high school, aren't sure if they want to go on to engineering school and could participate in this, in this program, say in the fall or spring, you know, before they decide to go ahead and commit the money and resources to it, to enroll full-time in an, in, in an engineering program. Yes. Yeah, so you're saying open it up to high school graduates. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually would allow a high school graduate to apply to the program and enroll, um, I don't know how palatable it would be because I think there's usually availability of labs and clubs and other things that is included in their tuition if they're already going to college and they'd be able to do that for free versus paying to come to Blue Stamp and be, and be taught there. So I guess if a college student came to me and said, hey, can I do Blue Stamp? I'd say, absolutely. Is a reason that you aren't using the free clubs like Formula SAE or the Solar Racer Club or the Robotics Club that is already offered at your college. I guess I was asking if for a student that wasn't sure if that's what they wanted to do, then they could participate before they actually signed up and spent a, a, a semester or two of worth of tuition at the engineering school. Oh, my God, that'd be an awesome idea. I talk to <laughs> students all the time. You can you don't have to figure out what you want to do with your life. Um, you don't even have you could be 50 years old and change course if you wanted. But Boy, it sure is much more lucrative and much easier to figure it out early. And I'd hate, I'd hate to see somebody with an engineering degree and a hundred K in debt that doesn't want to do engineering. That's when they slip into finance. 
yeah, finance or you know, <laughs> there, there's a million things you can do with an engineering degree that is not design engineering, but um, there were probably more efficient methods of getting there than going to engineering school. This is true. Uh, so, Dave, uh, besides Blue Stamp, you're also a pretty regular contributor to Element 14, uh, which is an electronics community website for those listeners who don't know. Um, done that in the past. Uh, for those not familiar with the sites, what kind of topics do you normally write about there? Um, I like to write, well, anytime I do a project, I like to post it there just to get attention or to show that, you know, this is a cool thing I've done, check it out. So I'll post it there and usually on my website as well. And then I also like to write about what it's like to be an engineer that's also interested in entrepreneurial topics. Yeah, I think those are the ones I remember from reading about your uh, your posts. Yeah, it's funny. Those are the ones that seem to be most popular as well. Um, <laughs> there's a correlation <laughs> there. But, I, yeah, I really enjoy writing that, that stuff because I think a lot of I think a lot of engineers really have an entrepreneurial mindset just because they're so used to creating something from nothing every day. Uh, it's like, well, if I can create a circuit from nothing, maybe I can create a business from nothing. And um, drawing, there are similarities there, and then there are very big differences as well. And talking about those as I continue to learn about them and struggle through them, I think is, is pretty interesting. So, Dave, uh, your contributions over to Element 14 seem to be tapering off. Uh, got a little bit more of a workload these days? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's been, so I, I write in Element 14 whenever I can. It's something that, um, I really enjoy doing. I particularly enjoy doing it when I'm waiting for an airplane or, um, you know, I, I have, I have some time that would otherwise be dead and it allows my mind to wander. And if I have more engineering work come up or if I have more in, lately it's been blue stamp, uh, if I have more other work coming up, it's tough to have, the freedom of mind to be able to write. I don't think I've ever written a good article under a deadline. And, <laughs> uh, it's, it's that free form I, that I think people want, the informal, like, I was just thinking about this today, what do you think? Putting that up on a website I think is attractive to a lot of people to read because they're probably sitting at their desks at work trying to burn some time before a meeting starts, and <laughs> they're, they're in that same mode. So maybe, maybe it's uh, getting people on the same plane. Yeah, I agree with the uh, the no deadline thing you're talking about. It's it's nice to just pop an idea into your head and sit down and write it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it seems forced. Yeah, it's exactly right. And like forced articles work great for things like um, writing a textbook. Yeah, or a traffic report. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a whole pile of half written articles because I got a few paragraphs in and just said, eh, "This isn't very good. It's forced. I don't like it." Yeah, you know, I've got I've got a folder of sucky articles too. <laughs> yeah, one day I'm going to get around to finishing them when I have time. I, I I just give up on them. I say if it's not good in the first few attempts at writing, it's over. I've actually dusted maybe one or two off, but not not very often. It's hard to, to pull anything out of the garbage pile. Have you? I, maybe I look in the uh, maybe I look in that folder and see if there's anything I can resurrect. Yeah, sometimes I, I don't uh, I don't resurrect a story, but I'll think about it and say that's stupid. Let's write about this instead, and then mm -hmm. I go off in a different direction. So it's nice to look back for inspiration. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I should check check out some of that stuff, especially since you're, you're right. It's been a dry spell for the last month or so. I gotta I gotta get some stuff up. But the other thing I really enjoy writing about is uh, Cad Soft Eagle. I put up a few articles about that, and I'm working on two additional ones right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just it's funny, CadSoft is 
a program that I think is developing a bigger and bigger following, not just because it's kind of like the open source tinker go-to, or at least one of the go-tos, but because if you want to go professional with it, you can write a check and you can get a, a, a pretty solid package. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, writing about that is, and certainly on Element 14, it's a place to go because that's where the community is, but a lot of people like reading about those things, especially tutorials. Like, here's an awesome feature that people don't really talk about. You should check it out. I think I think is a, a interesting article to the users of it. Now, for non electrical engineers like myself, Dave, uh, maybe you can help me out. I was I was smart enough to figure out. I mean, I'd heard of Element 14. I visited there a couple times. I saw some of your articles in the past, and I was at least smart enough to recognize that that. Uh, Element 14 uh, uh, reference uh, silicon, so that made sense with the IC chips and the electrical uh, focus. But then I started to get really confused again. Uh, I started here referencing uh, people referencing about buying things from Element 14. I didn't understand that and then figured out there was a, some connection between Newark Electronics and Element 14. And just so what's the uh, – for those of us that are not in the know, exactly what is the relationship there? Which came first and who belongs to whom? Yeah, it, this gets into the world of crazy distributor business stuff, which I don't fully understand myself. Um, so <clears throat> there's Newark and Farnell and probably like three other companies that have all been acquired and moved around and merged and blah, 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 blah. So now, before they were just referred to as Newark or Farnell. And then I guess a few years ago, they got together and they said, enough of this. What we're going to do is we're going to call us Element 14 and we're going to use this opportunity to get big into the social or the community game that exists in the electronics field. And so when they created their Element 14 site, they rebranded themselves. And so the goal I think that they're striving to is... Element 14 is the worldwide global distributor, and it's also a giant community where if you have questions or if you want to talk tech or you want to talk uh, Eagle or whatever, that's where you go. Uh, and I think it's, I think the success has been pretty good. They get a lot of viewers, um, especially related to Raspberry Pi. Like that's, in, in my opinion, that's the number one place to go for Raspberry Pi. And um, Eagle, it's another, that's where they keep the Eagle forms, but they have um, many other different communities in Arduino and on single board computers like Bewell Blown Black. And I guess there's like eight different single board computers now out, Panda Board and a few others. But they have other communities that are, are getting stronger and stronger. And I think they're just trying to make one big operation. Uh, where they fall, I think, short of that, and what you're getting confused about is... Purchasing departments are notoriously slow about adapting or finding new ways to do things. Right. So if you're a purchaser who's just buying stuff, you're not going to be happy about having to deal with new names and new invoices and new blah, 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 blah. So you can still refer to them as Newark or Farnell, and many, many, many people do. Uh, I just think that rebranding effort is going to take some serious time. Okay, so so Element 14 all along has been... I mean, that site has been owned by an electronics distributor. It wasn't just started up by the community. No, I don't think so. I think it was, I think it was Newark that started it. But you know what? Now that you mention it, I'm not positive. Um, they may, maybe they bought it out. Like they bought out Eagle. Yeah, I was about to ask that. Aren't they the, they own CADSOC now, correct? 
Correct. So uh, maybe they did the same thing with Element 14. They're like, oh, here's this great site. Let's let's buy it and make it ours. If they did, that's brilliant. I mean, that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, starting community is not easy. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's something they added in or what. It'd be crazy, though. If, like, <laughs> I mean, the notion that if they bought a small community site called Element 14 and then turned around and changed the name of their global distribution company that's worth billions of dollars, like that would be insane. When I sort of stumbled across this and was confused, I wondered if they'd done that because if they did, I thought that was just a, just a brilliant marketing mm-hmm. device. Or yeah. it's a defunct porn site, one or the other. <laughs> one of the two. One of the two. So before we get into uh, talking about your company, Dave, I, I wanted to go back to you talked about you enjoyed writing about uh, technical development, uh, tech development, and entrepreneurial development. And you said there were differences between the two. And so can you give us one or two just major differences that you see between the two that you stumble across all the time? Um, differences between like being in a big company and working for somebody else. Yeah. So you, you prefaced it by saying that engineers think that who are exposed to doing product development say, well, I can, de- I can design and develop a new product from scratch. Maybe I can develop a new business from scratch. And you said there are differences between those two arenas. I was just wondering if you give us a highlight of what you think the biggest differences are between those two. Yeah. The biggest one is the one everybody talks about which is the whole notion of if you build it, they will come is full of shit. Like that is not <laughs> true. Um, it's things don't happen unless uh, somebody's out there selling it. And yeah. um, just because you made like when you have a circuit that works, you have to build a prototype, test it, make sure it it's running the way you want, refine it maybe a little bit. And then it's done. Uh, there's an absolute. It's it's there. It's done. It works great. Um, and then you think you've created something that when you're looking at an entrepreneurial environment, your uh, development test change test change test is not just focused on the product or what you're offering, but it's focused on the acceptance and the availability and all these other factors. So um, I think being able to take that global approach is the biggest difference or the, certainly the biggest struggle that I faced, it's, um, it's a, it's a challenge to recognize that it won't happen just overnight because you want it to. That's the same sort of thing I discovered when I went out into business for myself is that it is much less the technical capability as the, the, the connections and the relationships you have with other people, whereas somebody's going to say, well, I could, I've got a job to do. I could call a dozen people why am I going to call Jeff? And a lot of times it's not because Jeff is a better, uh, in my case, a, a better mechanical designer, but because we had a nice conversation the last time along and I, you know, I was able to point out, you know, when we talked, I was able to point out some interesting technical detail about their, their product or their uh, service. And there's, you know, there's a very human relationship, uh, a human connection that's involved in that, that transaction much more so than just the technically I'm better than somebody else. Yeah, and actually you touched on the biggest thing. I would I would imagine that the purchasing decisions most people make are less logical than like less than 50% logical. Uh there's so right. much more involved in a purchasing decision on every level that I, I, almost like a spec sheet is irrelevant. Uh you can and you can you can <laughs> see that, you know, like people like to buy stuff on a hope and a dream, I guess. I don't know. 
Yeah. And if you're doing like I, and I believe you're doing the same thing. If you're dealing with big corporations, now you've got, you've got complex sales because you're not dealing with a single individual. It's not like selling a car to one person. You're selling a product or service to an organization. And now you've got to get, you know, the engineer and the engineer's boss and the person in manufacturing and the person in quality. And all of a sudden you've got a dozen people that are, are having their say in whether this, you know, whether your product is going to be purchased or not. Yeah, that sounds awful. I actually work with small companies to avoid that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, tell you what, why don't you tell us a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, consulting business? Uh, yeah, so I started the consulting business in 2010, maybe a little bit before that, um, mm-hmm. as a way to get into the entrepreneurial field technically without having to throw all my eggs into one basket and work for one startup who may or may not be funded and who may or may not be funded in six months, even if they do have cash. So, right. um, you know, if you want to diversify, you go small on a lot of different things instead of big on one thing. And it's, it's proved to be really beneficial. The other really nice thing is like you mentioned, a big dealing with big companies is probably a real pain in the neck. Uh, I like working with companies where the person who I'm selling to is the same person that writes a check is the same person that, uh, approves the design, um, and is the same person that, uh, asks me for follow-on work. So, right. um, I, I usually focus on getting people, I guess my consultancy is focused on getting people sorted out with what ideas they have, um, the methods by which they can be designed. And then I, I can design it for them and take it all the way into setting them up with production. Uh, my favorite clients come to me and they say, Hey, I've got this core technology I know exactly how this core technology works, but I need this custom power supply or I need this custom cert, uh, control system or this custom sensing system, and then I've got a real product. And mm-hmm. so I take them all the way from, like, this is how your electronics needs to look, and then I design it for them, I prototype it, I give it to them. Once they approve that, then I'll go set them up with contract manufacturing. So my goal is that by the time I'm done... They don't have to call me and pay my engineering rates. They call the contract manufacturer and they say, I'd like another hundred boards, please. And Mm -hmm. they buy that just like they would buy a screw or a case or a cable. Right. And that seems to be a real beneficial partnership with the company because they, once they have the electronics down, it lets them focus on other stuff. And they, if they know they can get like a hundred on a four week lead time, then uh, it simplifies the business side of and the sales side of getting the making money. So, would the expectation though be that you would support any obsolescence issues that uh, happened on the road? Yeah, uh, I I usually offer follow on work, and that is something that I leave in the contract as like an open item. And if they want to engage me on either a maintenance contract or an hourly maintenance contract, that's something that can be negotiated. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they find that, you know, the thing's too expensive or they want to change it, or like you said, there's obsolescence, I'm always available to redesign and change things. Um, and then again, set them up with the manufacturing. The goal is they don't, they don't have to bother learning anything about electronics and they don't have to bother learning anything about electronics manufacturing. Uh, I set them up, I give them a phone number to call when they want more and they know me, my phone number when they need to change something or, or make it a little different. And how do you go about finding these customers? If you're working for a big company, they sort of have their, you know, their tentacles out. They, you know, they have sort of the lay of the land and the, the contractors they go to. 
and people sort of come to them. But if you're dealing with companies that are so small that the same person that is giving you the design spec is writing the check, then these are people that probably don't have a lot of knowledge of, of where the, the engineering skill sets may lie. How do you find these people? <laughs> Lately, it's actually been really quite pleasant. Most of my clients have been referrals from past clients. Uh, well, that's fantastic. That's that's good on a couple levels. It makes your life easier, and it speaks to your the quality of your service. Yeah, and you're right. That's great. And what's even better about that is both parties, both me and the party that got me as a referral, have in- incentive to be reasonable members of an agreement because our reputation is on the line. So, yeah. um, you know, if, if the person who is looking to hire me is a jerk, then I could go back to my last client and say, you know, you set me up with this jerk. What's going on with that? Uh, and similar to them, if, if that client went back to the referring client and said, Hey, Dave's awful. It was a bad idea. Then that ruins my referral forever. Yeah. So how do you help people develop their product ideas? How do you take what they think they want and sort of guide them towards what's actually technically possible? Yeah. That's always a challenge. Um, <laughs> I I usually like to sit down over coffee or beer or whatever and have what I would call the fun conversation. So that's okay. like get all the ideas down on the paper. Like whatever idea, I don't care if it requires a perpetual motion machine to make it work. We can put it down. And it's a ton of fun to sit there and especially when it's beer because by the end the, the ideas get pretty crazy. But I I prefer to sit down get all that on paper and then go back and think about it and then offer them a few suggestions, you know, come up with pros, cons. This is a good idea. This is a bad idea. This is impossible. Um, it might be easier if you went about it this way uh, and then come back and talk to them about the method I would use and other methods that would be available to them and what the pros and cons are. Um, mm-hmm. And having giving people a, a menu has a really great effect on them. They, they understand that there are limitations and at the same time, you, there's choices, but not so many, not the infinity number of choices that people usually are faced with when doing technical designs. Yeah. And so and so, how many options do you typically give them? Uh, uh, as few as two and as many as 10, I guess. Um, okay. And it, it really depends on the scope of the project. So if it's a very simple project, there's probably very few different options that could be entertained. And if it's a very complicated project, you know, there's going to be a lot of paths. So are, are most of your projects... Uh simply circuit based or is it a lot of embedded work or um in general it's circuit based i i thrive on you know power systems sensing systems analog systems and uh and control systems as far as hardware goes and then mm-hmm. if there needs to be some some logic or some control system i can i can write code for that just like i was saying earlier not too much i usually like to engage a subcontractor for significant firmware jobs and and how does the, uh, the guiding a client through the development process change as the project develops? I'm thinking that, you know, at least the projects I've been involved in, the initial projects rarely looked like the finished product. Yeah. And so there were different issues when it was a, uh, you know, when it was a seed and when it was a sprout and when it was blooming and, you know, when it started, you know, if we're making an analogy to a tree or something as it started to grow and get bigger, that that the the issues were different as you went through. And since you're a sort of a a one-man band there, have your own consultancy, how does how does uh, your approach to it change as the product develops? 
Yeah, you know, that's actually a real challenge in deciding how to quote the job. If the client wants to have a fixed-cost project, but they don't know exactly what they want, obviously there's some conflicting uh, <laughs> problems. So when, when that happens, I have a desire to flee. Yeah, so I usually, in that case, people are usually amenable, or at least the serious clients are amenable to doing an hourly contract, at least to flesh out the ideas, and then once we have an idea of what it would look like at the end, we could go to fixed price. So there's obviously changes in everything you make, and I don't know. It, it's pretty. It's pretty easy to be accommodating when it's when it's a small company. You know, it, it's only one person or two people or maybe three people that are putting their input in as to what they need and what they want and what's worth paying for. Uh, mm-hmm. And if they if they understand that there's a cost to every change they make, um, as long as you're clear about that, it, it tempers greatly the amount of changes that they desire. So if you say, yeah, I'd be happy to make that change, it's probably going to cost this much to do that. Uh, that usually drives the conversation in one direction or another very quickly. Yeah, best to nip those last-minute spec changes in the bud. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, can, I can make this work any way you want. Uh, it's just a question of how much work we're going to have to throw away in order to make that happen and how much more complicated it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, and you get the benefit of, you know, when you're consulting and doing it on your own, uh, essentially, is you can call the shots and make that decision. When you work for a company, even though you know it's impossible and will cost a lot and many sleepless nights, you don't always have the final say. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But on the flip side, if it goes south, uh, it's all on me. <laughs> true. <laughs> you can't you can't pin it on someone and say I told you so. Right, right. I told you so. It's a lot less fun than a one person situation. Yeah, yeah. You got to argue with the mirror. Mm-hmm. Does that does that tend to make you a little bit more conservative in your design approach? You know, it has. Um, especially since it's my name that's going on it. I'm all about getting the client what they want and making sure it works the way they want it. And if if I can't do that, I start to get really nervous. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter why the client has a, why the client is unhappy. The, the reality is if you have an unhappy client, you have an unhappy client, even if it was their boneheaded decision to put you in that situation. Right. So um, I consider it, even if, even if it's another client that's buying the IP, it's still my name that's on it, and that definitely drives um, my risk tolerance and my, um, I guess, how quickly I'll jump into a project. I want to make sure I fully understand it before I sign on to it. Do you try to avoid science projects? I mean, do you ever turn away business because you feel that, you know, there's a low probability for success and you don't want to be, you know, simply just burning their cash? Um. No, I don't think I've I've ever come across a project that's put me in that position. Um, there, there are situations where I don't think I would run the business that they're running. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I wouldn't have the same faith that they've got in it. But <laughs> you know that's okay. There's there's so many people that wouldn't have the faith in Blue Stamp to get it running. But here it right here it is. So um, it doesn't bother me that I think, like, if I was to think you're never going to sell this to anybody, um, I, that wouldn't bother me at all on quoting a job because I don't know much about sales. And um, certainly crazier things have happened in insofar as, say, I mean, look at stuff like the Snuggie. Somebody would have mm-hmm. come up to me like, hey, I'm going to start selling this. I'm like, good luck with that. You're on your own. Um, but they made, you know, they made a bajillion dollars. So 
I, I wouldn't ever ding somebody because I think that their sales or the product would stink or people wouldn't buy it. I would ding somebody if they wanted, you know, the, I always use the example of the perpetual motion machine. If they wanted to design one, um, definitely not signing on to that. And do you find yourself worrying about how aggressive to be with the technology uh, because of this? I mean, there's always trade-offs between, well, I could do this with analog computers or analog components, or I could do it with FPGA, or I can do it in a micro, or I could do, you know, there's there's always different ways of doing it. But, uh, but at some point, you may be selecting, say, newer technology that's not completely proven out. So do you have to weigh how, how aggressive you are with the uh, the state of the art? Yeah, you know, that's something you definitely have to temper against, uh, especially when writing a fixed price quote. And it's the frustrating time is when you don't know you have the business and you're spending all this time quoting. So I'll, right. I'll go pretty far into the design process to chase after a quote so that I don't get in a position where I feel like I'm taking unnecessary risks. At least, at the very least, I'll have a very good idea of this is possible. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work, but I know that there's a part that exists that does what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing is being a consultant. I always have in my back pocket, not charging them and walking away. Unfortunately, I've never had to do that. But once you realize, like once you do the worst case analysis of if I quote on this job, the bid gets accepted and I take the job and then I realize that it's impossible. It's not like anybody dies. I just have to go to the client and I would have to say, this is impossible. I can explain to you why. I'm not going to charge you because I couldn't deliver. I just wasted my time. And that's unfortunate. Right. But, you know, there's there's risks in every business. Have you ever had a situation where you've partnered with a, another contractor in like a, a completely different field? You know, like a client brings you in for the electronics, but then another guy for optics or DNA extraction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had clients that have paid me just to do a board spin, Clients that have paid me to, um, it's interesting. Some people hire me just to be a consulting guide. So I'll do the design reviews and I'll, um, I'll do some of the error analysis or I'll guide the architecture of it, but I won't actually do the, um, the board layout or the part selection. And it's, it's been a very beneficial situation in the past where they don't have to spend a ton of money and they get a lot of expertise for the price. Mm -hmm. do, do you find yourself in the room with like other contractors too? Uh, or is it just kind of a, we're going to hire one guy just to get a fresh set of eyes on a project? I have been involved where in a projects where I am one of uh, a couple contractors. Um, but I've also had situations where it's, it's just me coming in to give a, a quick jolt to the project and then bail. Do you have one that you prefer uh, long-term or, you know, short, quick ones? I guess it depends on the project. So I, I sometimes I get into projects and I'm like, this is the coolest project ever and I want to do everything I can to be a part of it. And then other projects, it's like, you know, this is a normal project, nothing that great about it. I'll just come in, do my thing, send an invoice and be done. So mm -hmm. um, I guess just like if you're working for a big company, you're going to have projects that are like the best thing you've ever worked on. And there are these other projects that turn out to be spreadsheet work all day. Yeah, yeah. You definitely pick your favorites and focus your efforts towards the one that appeal to you. Yeah, for me, it's all about, really, it's always all about the project, what we're building, how we're building it, the technology involved, the impact that it has. That's 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 really the gold standard for as far as the enjoyment I get out of a project. As long as you're happy and it pays the bills, too, it's a win-win. Yeah. 
Yeah, a couple of episodes ago, we talked with uh, Sophie Kravitz about uh, going out on on your own, and she was talking about the importance of having personal contact with her clients. You know, there was a radius around where she she worked, where she was able to draw clients from, uh, but she, you know, it was important that she was able to meet with them face to face. And I'm wondering, since you're already sort of jet setting around the country for Blue Stamp, whether you're you're dealing mostly with clients that are in your local area where your office is, or you're, you're dealing with clients from all over the country or maybe internationally? Yeah, I don't, I always, whenever possible, I always do things locally, but I would say I wouldn't bat an eye at picking up clients that are in other places. I've had clients as far as Nairobi in Africa. I never met the guy. Um, okay. And it was a great relationship. Everything worked out the way we hoped. Um, Skype is a powerful tool. So, you can you can do a lot of work. So I have I have clients in Chicago and New York and um, L.A. and I, I I pick them up wherever they wherever they come from. Uh, I have had experiences in the past that haven't worked out as well with clients, and those are when there's the hardware that needs to be done at the location of the client, and then I need to do work on that same hardware in my own lab, and uh, mm-hmm. that that doesn't really work. It either I wouldn't quote on a job in that situation. It would either all need to be developed here in my lab and then sent for approval as a prototype or all be done on client location and then it would have to be a local job. Right. And so we've talked a little bit about the developing the idea on the front end of, uh, you know, here are all the possibilities and here's a menu of ideas. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happens on the back end when, when you've actually developed the product and the client comes to you and says, Hey, this is great. Now I need a thousand or a million of these things. Uh, how are you able to help out at that point? Yeah, that's awesome when they do that because then you know you, the, <laughs> you know the, the hardest part is done, or at least the riskiest part is done. Right. Um. So I prefer to work with a few manufacturers that I've known and I've, I've had a relationship with. And so when they say, "All right, I want to go to production with it." I offer them to, for me to set it up. And like I said earlier, then they just have to call the manufacturer and get another set on order. Or if they just want me to guide the process, I can do that. But really the process consists of coming up with a quoting packet, which is like the Gerbers and the bill materials and um, the component placement file and all the different files that you need in order to get this board built. And then that package is created and sent out to whatever board houses you want to quote on the job. And then they come back with questions, you answer their questions, or you give them an assembly drawing or whatever they need, and then they can go off and uh, just start building them. Right. And, you know, it's not that easy. So you have to do first articles. So as soon as the contract is awarded to the contract manufacturer, they'll do, like, you know, run a 10, and then you'll test them. There'll be something wrong with it, or there'll be questions. And I'll support that whole process. And then once, like, the first run of a 100 or a 1,000 is complete, then I kind of go away until an issue cop crop props up with obsolescence or changes or whatever the client would need. Yeah. And, and the happiest day is when you get a, a call back from a client that says, you made a thousand of these for us last year. We need just a small change and make a thousand again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you know, you know, it can be done. You know how to do it. The client's already happy with your work because they're coming back to you. And, uh, Usually it's it's a pretty simple process. Yeah, and that's one way that you really can make clients happy is when you turn around something that like they would it would take them a long time to figure out or it'd take them a long time to engage another engineer and for you to be able to turn it around in a couple weeks is um 
I, that that's the difference between somebody who's just kind of good at their job and somebody who's awesome at their job. Yeah, I used to work with a, a design engineer who, at the time, I didn't completely understand, but he he had boxes and boxes of drawings from old machines that he had worked on, uh-huh. and. He had, he had drawings going back 10 and 15 years. And I was like, what are you doing with all these drawings? And he said, look, when the client calls and says, and he had worked for several different companies over this period of time. He says, when the client calls and says, I don't remember who you were working for at the time, but I know you were the guy who was involved with this design and the machine is down or the machine needs changes or we need another, the same thing. He says, I have the drawings. I can pull it out and we can, you know, proceed on. And that makes the customer happy. And that's what it's really all about. If you have a happy customer, then, you, then you're in good shape. <laughs> Speaking to uh, record keeping, uh, Dave, when you are finished with a job, what typically happens to the IP you produce? Do you just turn it all over to the company and it's theirs? You don't keep any files? Or um, do you have like, your own personal library of stuff they you know, let you keep? Because if they call you back two years later, you're going to have to refresh yourself somehow. Um, that's at the discretion of the company. Uh, almost always, so my standard, my boilerplate consulting contract has a clause in it that says, you know, upon full payment, the IP is yours. And mm-hmm. so if they want me to hold on to it, that's fine. Usually they have me uploaded to the server and they say, you know, you can keep it back up. That's no issue. But the IP is always there. So like, I wouldn't be able to take that board design and turn it around and use it for somebody else's project. Now, how, how fine, how, how fine does that go? Obviously you couldn't use the same board with a different company, but if you invented some nifty little circuit that they don't really care about. They just want the end product. Are you allowed to reuse that? Or um, it, That's not come up, but if it did, I would engage the company for a licensing agreement. Well, yeah, there's a couple different things that happen. A lot of the stuff, like if it comes right out of the data sheet, obviously the IP is public and I can mm-hmm. use it as much as I want. Um, so like if you, you know, if you have a LM317 circuit in there, there's no way anybody's going to chase you down for an LM317 circuit. But yeah, yeah. Um, if, like you said, if let's say I had some cool front end sensing system for a specific sensor and I wanted to use that on another project, um, that's not that's not my IP to give to another client. So I would have to engage the original client on a licensing agreement. Gotcha. Even if they didn't have like any patents on it, or yeah, I, I am. I would be bound by the confidentiality. That's that's their IP, and the only reason I know about it is because I was in a position to see the IP. It's not public. Mm-hmm. So uh, the fact that that it exists and I know about it um, means that uh, like it wasn't a public disclosure, so I can't go and chase it for somebody else. Interesting. This is all very new to me, so I'm asking some pretty easy questions, I guess, for someone who's in the business. Yeah. So hypothetically, if, if you couldn't broker a licensing agreement, you'd have to duplicate the circuit in some sort of a novel way, correct? Yeah. Um, boy, I'm not sure. Resolve yeah, so the same problem. I mean, yeah, how if I had the exact same problem and I knew a solution in my brain, but I knew I couldn't use that solution, um, yeah. I, I don't know how I, I could handle it. I suppose that, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how I can handle it. Um, <laughs> I, I would hope that I could get a licensing agreement. I guess if everything goes horribly and nobody wants to talk and everybody's being a jerk, then I would have to either come up with a new way of doing it or not accept that bid. Mm-hmm. And any common misconceptions that your clients have about what you can or can't do for them? Oh, all the time. 
Um, and that's totally fair. They, um, they can't really, they can't really know. The, the reason they're hiring me is because they're not familiar with electronics and they don't know what is reasonable to ask and what's unreasonable to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so them asking for something like, you know, I want, I want an iPhone, but better and cheaper. <laughs> Like in their mind, that's, that's, that's totally normal because, you know, somebody can make an iPhone. It's like five years old. Why can't you make a better one? Um, yeah, but that's where, and I guess that's where the, the benefit of having this blue stamp experience and the consulting experience is I, I look at my job as a consultant very much so as an educator. So it's my job to show them this is what's possible this is what's not possible, and here's why you can't do that. And being able to explain that to somebody is very helpful when trying to either first prove that you know what you're doing, or second, talk them into a specific design path that you think is going to be the best method. Yeah. Have you ever done a prototype to show somebody that things won't work? <laughs> um, I mean, I've done lots of tests that show that it, it won't work. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I can give that data. I, and I'll, I'll go so far as to write test report, like formal test reports for clients if they want them. But I don't know about building a whole prototype to fail. I mean, every prototype <laughs> I make fails the first time. It's just a question of getting it to work, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I was thinking of like a particularly stubborn client that insists no matter what, and you know, they they want to pay you for the job anyways, and your conscience as an ethical engineer won't let you. So, you know, you just do some quick proof of concept, you know, a Saturday in your garage and say, hey, look, see, it, this is the very basic foundation. It won't work. Yeah, I think the wise thing to do on a client that's that stubborn is to just bail in the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or you bring the prototype into the meeting room and let it explode in front of them. Say, see? <laughs> yeah, the, thing, the funny thing is I can make a lot of things ex- explode that don't have anything to do with their idea. <laughs> <laughs> Their entire idea is predicated on reverse uh, reversing a polarity and a whole bunch of electrolytic caps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then what's really funny is they would probably then build that system and it would work just that once. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a novel timing circuit. They've measured it and electrolytic caps can withstand so much reverse bias for about 30 seconds and then right. they blow up. So right. you got four of them, that's two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, or, or the customer says, no, nobody will leave it on for more than 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, who needs up-down counters or, you know, right. built-in timers? When it goes bang, it counted. Yeah, so the operator doesn't fall asleep. When you hear the explosion, flick the next switch. <laughs> yeah, it's a feature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they paid for. So, uh, Carmen, there is a subject that we often come to on this podcast that has nothing to do with engineering. What would that subject be? Oversimplifying Adam's job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. And, and Adam's not with us this evening. He he was unfortunately ill and couldn't make it. Uh, is there is there another subject, another topic that we often like to uh, land on? I suppose we sometimes discuss uh, fizzy alcoholic beverages. Yes. Yes. That's what, that was the one I was going for, the fizzy <laughs> alcoholic beverages. And I, I understand, Dave, that you had a client, uh, that was involved with home brewing. Yeah. Yeah. Brew jacket. These guys are, you know, anybody involved in home brewing is automatically going to be a ton of fun. And, uh, these guys. <laughs> I don't think I've like, ever met a miserable home brewer. Yeah. And these guys are no exception. So immediately I was, I was really happy that they reached out to, to get some, 
get some advice, and I was happy to work on the design. But it, it's uh, it's called the Lager Jacket by Brew Jacket. And instead of the founder, Aaron, he had a problem where he lived in a small apartment in Arizona and he couldn't keep his fermenting beer cool enough. And he didn't have the space to have a, um, a mini dorm fridge to put the, to put the fermenting beer, the five gallon carboy in. So, um, he tried hooking up like an air conditioner to it and that didn't work. And, uh, he developed a Peltier cooler that would have a metal rod go into the middle of the middle of the beer. And it would eject the heat that way. Uh, so the intention is to have it be smaller and um, kind of out of the way, as opposed to what people usually do, which is a mini fridge. Right. Yeah, those those take up a lot of space. Yeah, yeah. And for non-home brewers, there's two ways you can make beer: room temperature. You can make top fermenting ales, or if you want to make. Uh, your uh, loggers, you need to keep the temperature down at, what, in the 40-degree range or so? Yeah, 40 to 50, I think. Yeah, right, yeah. right in that range. For bottom fermenting yeast. And so, Dave, what was your involvement with this uh, product? Uh, so they had a problem where they needed to control their Peltier in a specific way, and they didn't like any of the off-the-shelf temperature controllers. Mm-hmm. Um, they just didn't like the way they worked, and they wanted a custom version of it, uh, and they wanted to have a little bit more flexibility in the way things worked. So uh, they called me up and they said, hey, we need basically a thermostat that has these other special customizations that are going to be proprietary to our design. And uh, so I quoted them on it, that you know, sounds great. And then they sent me a unit, I developed the temperature controller, and um, we're continuing production now, or I guess development now. We're looking at, so we made the first run of beta units that work fine, and then we're updating the design based on beta feedback and moving forward from there. Great. You guys aren't testing it in, uh, you know, the wart or the virgin beer, are you? <laughs> mm-hmm. you're, you're not wasting all that, that beer if it screws up. You're using water or something, I hope? Um, well, I guess for the first one, you use water, but um, there's always beer that needs to be brewed. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on a homebrewer's budget, it's kind of expensive to keep dumping dumping batches down the drain if it uh, overheats during fermentation. Yeah, you know, I've been brewing beer for a long time, and I don't think I've ever dumped one beer down the drain. They, <laughs> I tell you, they have not all been winners. Yeah, it's like when you make a bad sandwich, you're stuck with it, and you're going to just eat it. You're just going to eat it. It won't be your first beer of the night, but you'll drink it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be damned if you see the 50, 60 bucks go down the toilet, and that's just for a kit extract brew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not any of the fancy high-octane beers. Yeah, yeah, help, <laughs> God help you if you do an all-grain all brew. That gets pricey quickly. I'm, I'm just getting into home brewing myself a little bit now that I've moved into my new house. I have uh, just a basic kit to start off with. I'm going to brew a brown ale, and maybe one day I'll buy a brew jacket. Yeah, they're, they're really great, great little devices, and they're simple to use. You plug them in, and it just goes to the temperature you want. Uh, actually, I've got like 25 gallons fermenting right now. Not all wow. mine. Um, <laughs> so I have so a, you moved I have off a, the stovetop then, haven't you? Yeah, I, I've got, and actually this is a project on Element 14. Um, I've got a double kettle brewing setup so I can have two kettles going at the same time all powered on the 220-volt output. That's run on an MSP430. Um, nice. Yeah, and it, it it's really fun to be able to have people come over and brew with me that don't have to be involved in my beer. So they can do whatever crazy thing they want to do 
and I can mm-hmm. make the beer that I want to make. And usually the wife and I have, you know, we have like uh crockpot dinner going so that when they come over in the evening, it's like a great Tuesday night activity. They come over, we start the brewing process, we eat dinner, we drink beer, we have dessert, we finish brewing. Um, very social. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And doing the MSP430 allows you to do more complicated beers, too, because you can step the boil process and add ingredients at certain times and yeah, I was going to make it do that, but it's it's a pretty dumb controller. Uh, it's it's like a stovetop controller where you just turn the knob mm-hmm. to where you want it. Uh, you're correct that I can make a, a brew profile and really just yeah. and really just put in a, a a recipe and have it go into like, all right, it's time for my imperial stout. Let's go. Um, mm-hmm. But I, to be honest, I don't do. I don't think I've repeated a recipe once. There's so many styles. Why would you, unless you really, really liked it? Yeah, and I have some beers that I really, really like. Like my Russian Imperial Stout, I find to be remarkable. And then I have a, a beer that I make with a bunch of ginger for the summertime that's really good. Um, mm. And I've made those multiple times, but they're always a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself just doing original recipes, or do you do uh, like clones of popular beers that you maybe can't get in your area? Um, it started with the clones, and it started with you know recipes and stuff. But um, now I, I, I think of something that I want, and I just go on, like, homebrew forums and put together a recipe based on what I think would taste good. Nice. Yeah. What kind of current draw do you have when you're uh, brewing? Uh, each heating element is 5,500 watts. So at 240 volts, what is that? Math. Math question. I know division is involved. It's <laughs> simple division. Watts of power going into each kettle, and the the smarts and the MSP four thirty is used so that neither, both won't be on at the same time because that would blow my fuse. Mm-hmm. It's like twenty amps or so, I think. Yeah. Twenty twenty five amps. Yeah, sounds about right. But it's nice. I can get I can get five gallons boiling in in um in under fifteen minutes. That's cool. Yeah. I assume you have the, the special wart chiller at the end so you can bring it down faster. Yeah, yeah. I got the wart chiller sitting there all in the, all in the uh, shop. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're pretty decked out then. <laughs> it's a nice setup. It's tons of fun to hang out and, and brew beer. It's one of my favorite winter weekday activities. That's a fun any day activity. Yeah, I live, in, I live in Colorado, so if I have like a Saturday, I try and get out and do something outdoors with the sunshine. Mm-hmm. Do you enter your beer in any competitions at all? Oh, Lord, no. They don't last <laughs> nearly that long. That might be something I do if I get advanced enough and have a big enough system. There's a, a homebrew competition. Raleigh's actually a really big beer city, and every fall there's a homebrew competition you can enter. Yeah. There's, there's a couple around town, actually. The one brewery that just started last year, you can enter at the beginning of the year a homebrew competition that lasts all year. And if you come out on top, you know, every week they'll change up the homebrew and they'll have different brackets and everything. And if you win at the end of the year, they'll brew your beer for a year and put it on wow. tap. Yeah, something along those lines. But it's pretty cool. That's an awesome prize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this brewery does it right. And their beers are pretty good, too. So. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll give them a plug since I talked to them, uh, talked about them so much. It's Raleigh Brewing Company. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Cool. Now, Dave, you recently had an article, a blog article about making custom Arduino boards. And I was wondering if, if, A, for those of us that are not electrical engineers or don't have a background, you can explain what an Arduino is. And B, if you could kind of compare the state of electronic 
development, uh, what it is now and the opportunities that are available now versus what it was, say, when you were in high school and you were playing around with an X10, but there was no such thing as an Arduino around? Yeah, so Arduino is a – I always describe it as a handicapped microcontroller. So um, a microcontroller is a piece of a, a chip that has, like, inputs and outputs that you can write some code on, and it'll just sit there and run it. Um, mm-hmm. And so what Arduino did was they said, all right, so this this microcontroller is very capable and awesome, but it's really complicated and hard to deal with, which is true. Um, you know, microcontrollers have all these registers that you need to move around, and there's all these rules, and you have to set fuses, and it's kind of a mess. So Arduino mm-hmm. said, we're going to handicap it, so there's only going to be like one way to turn on a digital out- – or one standard way to turn on and off an output pin, and there's going to be one standard way – to read an analog pin, and there's going to be one standard way to, um, I don't know, do PWM on an output. So mm-hmm. um, they handicapped all these chips so that it's simple and everybody's using the same code set, which very much lowers the barriers to entry on getting involved with electronics. So you can, right. for 20 bucks, you can get an Arduino uh, from Amazon delivered from Prime, and you can be blinking an LED or reading a voltage or outputting a pin within a few hours. And that's that's kind of their whole game was doing education and lowering the bar for how you can get involved with electronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of leads into your, your next question about how electronics is different today than it was 10 years ago. Like, obviously... You know, Moore's Law and the transistors getting smaller and the capabilities getting stronger and stronger and stronger is a huge impact on what you can build and how easily you can build it. And Arduino does represent a, I think, a fundamental shift in the way electronics are designed. Um, I like to refer to it as data sheet engineering. So I could sit there and design a circuit with transistors and it could work but it would take a lot of time and there'd be a lot of testing. Or I could buy this chip that has in the data sheet an example circuit that does exactly what I want it to do. Mm-hmm. And um, for things, for simple things like if I have a lithium-ion battery and I need to boost that lithium-ion battery to a 5-volt supply, right. there's no way I'm building a switching power supply from scratch. I'm going to go find a switcher chip, and it's going to cost a dollar, and I'm going to put it in the design, and it's probably going to work right out of the box. So right. um, it's, it's kind of like the Arduino approach to analog engineering in that case. And it's – if you're not going to be doing, like, major cost controlling or if you're not going to be doing um, – if you're not going to be doing, like, a million units or you don't need some super special application – there's a lot of the electronics that can be abstracted to the point of looking at a data sheet, getting an idea of how this part is used, and um, using that as a basis. Now, of course, no data sheet is supposed to be trusted at all. Like, their application circuits are not... Their application circuits are there to give you an idea of how to work it. Um, right. And if you copy it exactly out, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. But, it's true. I write them. Yeah, you know. Well, I shouldn't say failure, but layout's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes they give you eval boards with layouts that also do that. They give you a great idea of how to lay it out. But um, in, in electronics, there is no such thing as the only right answer. There is just a gajillion ways to screw it up. 
And so, uh, <laughs> there is, you know, every data sheet application circuit has screwed some application up in some way, somehow. <laughs> so, uh, you can't, it's not a cookie cutter, but, um, as far as like sitting there scratching your head on how you can best use this part, they've gotten you halfway there with, with their application note or with their application information. My sense is though that the, the opportunities for someone wanting to get into electronics are just vast these days because it's so easy to get started. Oh, and so cheap too. Uh, you know, you can, you can make a pretty compelling project for a few hundred bucks from scratch. Uh, and like I said, the Arduino is $20. You could probably do something really fun for like 50 bucks if mm-hmm. uh, you were on a budget. And so your students in Blue Stamp Engineering, are, do they come in wanting to use Arduino? And do you encourage that or do you discourage that? Um, we have a policy at Blue Stamp where students can do whatever they want. Um, it's our job to educate them as to the decisions they're making. Okay. So many students want that abstracted level and they just want to have the Arduino development environment. And there's a lot of code that is existing on in Arduino forums that you can kind of take and start hacking away at. Right. And some students really like that. Other students are, um, I don't know how to describe them. They come in and they say, I want to do something nobody's done before. And um, I don't care how complicated it is. I want to do it. It's got to be the coolest thing. And I'm willing to work extra for it and all that. And that's great. And in that case, they... They may pick a MSP430 project because MSP430's got some really cool uh, sample projects and there's a lot of capability with that part. Mm-hmm. Or they could pick, um, you know, they could go with the Raspberry Pi or a Beagle on Black or whatever single board computer they may want to use. Right. Um, it, it's really a opportunity for them to stretch their legs and figure it out so we don't tell them what to do at all. Neat. That's yeah, very cool. As much fun as this is, guys, uh, we seem to be well over our hour um, <laughs> that we typically go. <laughs> that we never hit. Uh, yeah. So I think it's maybe time to start winding down. Do you have any uh, parting advice, Dave, before we sign off for the night? Yeah. Always do awesome stuff. Don't waste <laughs> your time. Be a mediocre. <laughs> Pretty good advice. And, and any hints as to how one makes sure that what one is doing is awesome and not just run-of-the-mill? Oh, if you're into it, it's probably awesome. If you're just doing it for a, if you're just doing it for a paycheck, it's probably a waste of time. So, if someone wants to get a hold of you, they've uh, they've heard something today, either about Blue Stamp Engineering or your uh, consulting service, or or maybe some other aspect of engineering that they uh, they found interesting. How uh, would you suggest that they got get a hold of you? Uh, so, the two websites, BlueStampEngineering.com is the education program, and YoungCircuitDesigns.com is the consulting side. Okay. Uh, and then on Twitter, we have. Dave Young EE is the consulting and Blue Stamp Eng, and then Facebook. We actually use Facebook a lot with Blue Stamp because our students like to share their projects. Nice. Uh, and so you can find us on Blue Stamp Engineering. We have a Facebook page. Fantastic. Well, Dave, I want to thank you again for uh, uh, spending your evening and uh, sharing some of your uh, your insights and experiences with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Fun hanging out with you guys. Yeah, great having you on again. We'll see you in 20 months. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> All right, see you, Dave. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.